Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 65 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And I'm also a big Halloween aficionado. How about you, Luke? Yeah, I like Halloween. It's Halloween right now when we're recording this. So by the time you guys hear this, it's Halloween's going to be in the rearview mirror. So happy November. <laughs> but been having a fun time this Halloween season. I love it. I love it. So do you have a spooky article for us to review? It's hard to say it's all that spooky, but I know you said you had a couple of good Halloween costumes that you're going to post up on our social media. So yes. be looking for that, guys, and call Michelle out if she doesn't do it because uh, she needs people to keep her honest. <laughs> and also, I wanted to say that you may hear a spooky sound during the broadcast, um, which is the pimping bell so when we ring the pimping bell that is some pimpable content stuff you should remember if you have to take tests or stuff that's fun to ask people in training if you teach those in training so as a pediatric dermatologist as a pediatric dermatologist i occasionally see patients who have neurocutaneous disorders and then i have to remember am i supposed to mri them or not and if so at what age and so on so this is a nice article that came out recently that reviews all of that stuff it's called Neuroimaging in Infants and Children in Select Neurocutaneous Disorders. It's out of the journal Clinical and Experimental Dermatology, and the authors are L. Steele and A.R. Shipman out of London, and they are um, the Department of Dermatology, so not, not like radiology or neurology. Dermatologists like, like us. I like it. And it's a nice review of the imaging recommendations in neurocutaneous disorders, specifically MRI recommendations. And of course, they lead with the caution that the reason you don't just basically do MRI on everybody, like we kind of do ultrasound on lots of people, is because babies and little kids often require sedation or general anesthesia. And I am not an anesthesiologist, but, quote, sedation is thought to be safer than, quote, general anesthesia. I'll admit I do not quite know the difference. I've heard people use the term twilight sedation and so on. I've also talked to anesthesiologists, and they say that even in the anesthesiology literature, the terms aren't necessarily well-defined. I'm not sure if that's actually true or not, at least, you know, today. Maybe it was four years ago when I asked somebody. Anywho, basically, they say that just sedation, not general anesthesia, is thought to be safer, but still gives you a good success rate of getting good images. They say 90 to 95 percent. And then little tiny babies like newborns, perhaps you can do this feed and wrap technique where you just give them a ton of milk and then wrap them up real tight and then they conk out and don't move. And maybe you don't need sedation or general anesthesia at all. I asked an anesthesiologist about that as well. And she wasn't super excited about feed and wrap because first you have to starve the baby beforehand. So just like being NPO for the procedure, if you're going to sedate them, they just can't eat because they have to have an empty belly so that you can completely fill it up with milk beforehand. And then if things don't go well, then you can't then switch to sedation or anesthesia, right? Because they right. have a ton of milk in their belly. Makes so sense. she preferred um, being in control as I think anesthesiologists do like to do, and just um, using their drugs to make patients do what they want them to do. So that's, of course, the caution with when we're thinking about MRI and why I always think, Gah, I really don't want to get an MRI on this kid, but I think maybe I have to because of such and such reason. So this article examines a handful, maybe seven or so, neurocutaneous disorders and talks about what you should do in terms of MRI. And they also have a nice little reminder of what the primary gene is that is thought to cause these disorders. So our friend the pimping bell will probably come trotting out. <laughs> so we'll start with Sturge-Weber syndrome, which is caused by a mutation in GNAQ, GNAQ. Where are you, pimping bell? Oops. There it is. So you probably remember that this is the... Port wine stains over like the forehead region and things like that. And they can have intravascular calcifications and things that put them at risk for seizures. And frustratingly, there are no definitive recommendations. 
Uh, All the authors that exist in the world at least agrees on imaging if a patient is symptomatic. But, I mean, come on. That's a no-brainer. <laughs> Thank you. It took you a second. Oh, sorry, there's a delay. You know, like how they have on the... I can't really blame it on that. I was actually trying to keep my word and putting the costume picture up on Dermister's Instagram. <laughs> oh, you were busy doing Instagram instead of listening to me. Yes. So if you're going to image somebody with Sturge-Weber syndrome, you want to do an MRI of the brain with contrast, and that can confirm Sturge-Weber syndrome. Some authors suggest imaging, quote, high-risk babies if at 12 months of age, even if they haven't had symptoms. What exactly high-risk means is a little bit unclear. Some people say high-risk would be a hemifacial port wine stain or a, quote, median pattern of port wine stain. Those patients are at a 50 to 80% risk of having Sturge-Weber syndrome. Though another group recommends MRI if any part of the forehead region is involved, ideally before age three months of age, Oof. with repeat MRI later if Sturge-Weber syndrome is clinically suspected and the MRI was initially negative. They say a recent study reported a sensitivity of 100% with early MRI before three months of age, though you want to do it with contrast and you want to use the three Tesla protocol or three tesla machine i don't know too much about mris but there's like 1.5 t that's tesla not not the car and then there's 3t you want to do the 3t one and the rationale behind early mri is that pre-symptomatic aspirin may improve outcomes so of course we don't like doing tests unless they're going to change management so this is the way it could change management so the authors of this article conclude the decision for early mri should be made in specialist centers Makes sense. But specialist centers means like me. Right. I'm a pediatric dermatologist at a major academic institution. So now I have to figure this out. <laughs> so I one of the articles they cite that suggests an MRI before age three months of age is uh, on my list of favorite articles. I have about 20 of them. And I was thinking that maybe I should start discussing them in Dermosphere here every so often. I found it fairly convincing. So I think my colleagues here at the University of Utah prefer to image when kids get symptomatic. But maybe this high risk thing is how we should sort it out. I look forward to a bunch of pediatric dermatologists who are smarter than I am getting together and giving us a consistent recommendation. Consortium. All right, let's talk about congenital melanocytic nevus syndrome. So this is caused by the mutation, a mutation in NRAS, N-R-A-S, and it's a little bit of a controversial entity even among pediatric dermatologists. So this is another article that I should probably talk about sometime. Um, but basically, an author, Veronica Kinsler, came out with this article a few years ago that said our old ideas of like neurocutaneous melanosis are outdated. And what's actually important is if a patient has two or more congenital melanocytic nevi of any size anywhere on the body. So not like a big one in the lumbosacral region or on the head or anything like that. Just two congenital melanocytic nevi of any size. Apparently that's rare enough that you worry about there being a an early kind of or germline mutation in NRAS that can also cause abnormalities of the CNS. I found the article convincing, and she says that anybody, any baby who has two or more congenital melanocytic nevi of any size should get an MRI at less than one year of age, ideally before six months, contrast brain and spinal cord. Wow. And I found the article convincing, though again, there are pediatric dermatologists who don't. They point out that an early MRI is the strongest predictor of adverse outcomes and helps guide follow-up. And in this article, the review that we're reading right now, their section on congenital melanocytic nevus syndrome, all of the citations are from that same original paper from 2015. But I've looked into this and I also feel that it makes sense and that the literature um, supports sedation rather than general anesthesia for imaging in these patients if possible. But again, still a bit controversial. But there you go. Two or more congenital melanocytic nevi, at least some experts say, should get an MRI with an analytic contrast of the brain and spinal cord, ideally before age six months of age. Let's talk about neurofibromatosis type 1. What's the gene for this one? Don't overthink it. It's NF1. So an MRI and NF1 would mostly be to detect optic pathway gliomas, which are common. They show up in 15 to 20% of patients with NF1, but only 15% of them require treatment. So maybe that's not that big of a deal. 
if they are becoming a problem, they usually present before age seven. So patients with NF1 should have regular ophthalmic follow-up at least until that age. If kids are asymptomatic and they can cooperate with optho exams, then MRI is probably not necessary in NF1, of course, unless there's some other symptoms going on. Three more conditions to talk about. The first is tuberous sclerosis complex, TSC, and the genes for that one are TSC1 or 2. So again, don't overthink it. And so they have suspect- other names too. Do you know the other names? Tuberin and Hammerton. Hammerton, yes. Which is nice because they make tubers and hematomas. So they're somebody kind and, you know, considerate named those as opposed to some of the gene names that are, you know, given to syndromic genes. True. Looking at you, Gina. It's okay. <laughs> so if you suspect tuberous sclerosis complex in a patient, and one reason you might do that as a dermatologist is if they have a bunch of hypomelanotic macules, for example, you want a brain MRI with and without contrast. So pretty much people agree. If you suspect tuberous sclerosis, brain MRI with and without contrast. One thing you might find is cortical tubers, which show up in 90 to 94% of people, or subependymal nodules in 80 to 90% of patients. And perhaps subependymal giant cell astrocytomas, six to fifteen percent, and of course the abbreviation for subependymal giant cell astrocytoma is SEGA or SEGA. If anybody's <laughs> old enough to remember those commercials. See, I was going to talk about Sonic Hedgehog the gene earlier, although that is very memorable. So that was a Sega Genesis. It's too bad Sonic me. Hedgehog does not cause Sega. Right. Um. But SEGAs can cause obstructive hydrocephalus, and early treatment is associated with optimal outcomes, which is one reason that you want to MRI these patients. Repeat MRI every one to three years until at least age 25. Let's talk about incontinentia pigmenti. So the gene is IKBKG, which encodes NF-kappa-beta. Essential um, modulator, which is also the called... the complex. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I don't know. Like, a lot of the mnemonics for... Um... Wachsulzberger disease, which is the eponym for IP, involved Nemo. Like I remember in residency, we learned about kids playing with blocks, watching Nemo. But I think I think that the um, technical name is more likely to be tested. So there are some good mnemonics for that one. <laughs> so <laughs> kids with incontinentia pigmenti have CNS involvement in thirty percent of cases. You want to MRI if they have neurologic symptoms, of course, or if there's retinal neovascularization. They need a lot of opto follow up early in life. And finally, basal cell nevus syndrome caused by the patch gene, PTCH1, which is also mutated in a lot of just normal basal cells. So the reason you might want to MRI these patients is because they can get medulloblastomas, which are a major problem. They show up in 3 to 5% of patients and usually before age 5. So some experts say consider annual MRIs until age 8. But kind of like Sturge-Weber syndrome, there doesn't seem to be a firm consensus. Fascinating. So there you go. Some nice reminders of neurocutaneous imaging. Um, and I think I will start busting out some of my old favorites because they're good. There's a reason they're my favorites. And we should probably discuss them on Dermosphere because if nothing else, I'd like to get your take on some of them, Michelle. I would like to. I would like to discuss those with you as well. So, Luke, what is this baseline from? Dung, 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 Under pressure. Down on me. I was a little bit worried that you might go the vanilla ice route, uh, but you are correct. That is the baseline from under pressure. And so we're going to talk about pressure-generated lesions, specifically painful pesiogenic pitting of the fingers in older adults. Now, pesiogenic, its root word is piezo, which is from pressure. And usually we see painful pesiogenic papules on the foot, specifically around the heel, or sometimes on the wrist, more recently reported. Here we have a sort of letter to the editor from the JAD of September 2021, in which they describe painful pesiogenic pitting of the fingers in older adults, a case series. They had six older patients that were adults that were, of course they were, okay, six older adult patients who were uh, encountered with these painful digital pittings of the fingers, and these remained for a prolonged period of time after pressure was applied. So basically, they're talking about the fact that once pressure was applied to these, an indentation would last for a prolonged period of time. The patients were seen at the dermatology clinic in Barzillai University Medical Center in Ashkelon, Israel, um, between 2017 and 2018. They took tissue biopsies, and the pathologist within me sings for delight about the tissue and being able to look at it, because remember, the favorite line of the dermatopathologist is, 
more tissue, please. But as the clinician, I'm like, wow, they talk to these people with painful papules on their fingers and a skin biopsy. Good for them. So they did the tissue samples for all patients. They also analyzed 12 control cases of tissue from age-matched skin in patients that had been biopsied for other reasons. So they didn't go poking holes in normal people's fingers. They just found stuff in their archives, which is a much more appropriate, I think, pathway. So the patients had presented with a complaint of pain of the digits of the hands associated with difficulty with activities of daily life. There were four men and two women included in the study that were aged between 61 and 93 years of age. They had normal baseline clinical laboratory tests, and none of them had an occupational history of exposure to solvents or toxins to explain the sensitization of their fingers. So like acrylates, things like that, that could cause potential digital sensitivity. On exam, they found that the tips of fingers in these patients had sustained an awful painful depressions when local pressure was applied, and the overall appearance of the skin, however, was normal. So they did histologic exam of these biopsies, which showed some compact orthokeratosis, which is just kind of consistent with an acral site, mildly acanthotic epidermis, which often happens in areas of dermal atrophy as a protective mechanism. And then they also saw a focal mild increase in superficial elastic fibers, but otherwise the tissue was unremarkable in terms of that component. However, they did find the proliferation of small nerve bundles in the dermis and at the dermal epidermal junction, and they have a nice figure of that demonstrating nice little elongated nerve endings between reedy ridges. They also had a nice stained section with S100 showing multiple small nerve fibers at the dermal epidermal junction. So these were much more common than you normally see, even in digital skin. And it was good that they compared this to normal acral skin biopsies in other patients, because you might just say, well, fingertips are sensitive. Of course, there's a lot of nerve endings, but this was excessive. So they actually found the small nerve endings spaced apart approximately one nerve ending for every 10 reedy ridges, in some patients even as close as in adjoining reedy ridges. There was also a mild increase in the amount and density of nerve bundles in the periadnexal tissue in the upper dermis, and immunohistochemistry stained for the protein S100 helped to confirm the presence of this in all six patients. When they compared all of these tissue specimens to the Suave control individuals, but they only were able to identify rare nerve endings, and those were typically distributed along the dermal epidermal junctions. So then they go kind of into why this might happen. There's theories about why we lose volume in our tissue as we age. Usually this is going to be related to the sort of involution of tissue and the reduced proliferation of tissue-sustaining cells, such as keratinocytes, loss of villi in the basal cells, flattening of the dermal epidermal junction, things like this. They noticed in reviewing the literature that changes in the dermis contributing to decrease in skin thickness were typically a decrease in the production of collagen, but the increased proliferation of nerve endings had not been mentioned in any of the literature they reviewed. So they wondered if the increased in nerve endings were some kind of a compensatory mechanism due to a compensation for the lack of normal collagen in that tissue, potentially as a protective mechanism to avoid trauma to these areas, which had less protection. And that might explain the pain and pitting experienced by these patients. They tried a lot of different treatments in these patients. Um, they tried, you know, in patients who had dry skin that was kind of cool, they tried steroid cream with salicylic acid with some improvement and reduced pain. In some, they tried local anesthetic with temporary relief. Attempts to regain the fullness of the connective tissue using supportive me mechanisms they wondered might potentially decrease the severity of the pitting and reduce stress on nerves and improve the worsening of the symptoms. I thought that was an interesting idea. Um, I also wondered if you couldn't use Botox. So a couple of different studies have been used, have been um, conducted using Botox to treat a variety of conditions that are sort of predicated on dysfunction of nerves. Um, and I think that that might potentially be a useful treatment for these patients. But I thought it was nicely done. Um, so the authors were Maton Rothschild and Saul Suster from the Departments of Medicine and Pathology at the Medical College of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and the Rasila University Medical Center in Ashkelon, Israel. So they didn't have any conflicts of interesting, uh, interest or anything like that. And I thought it was a kind of fascinating report. I know I've seen patients who have come to me with that complaint older patients that say, I've got this dent in my finger and it hurts. So now that at least there's some kind of cognizance of the potential for a pathophysiological association, I think there might be greater bounds of knowledge achieved on the presentation described. One thing I thought was interesting is that they said the skin looked normal, except it was pitting. So mm -hmm. it wasn't edematous, like yeah. I normally think about with things that pit. And the nice thing is that it looks like it's fairly easy to treat. So they got improvement with topical steroid and topical anesthetic. So I suspect that a lot of us have been like, well, I don't know what's going on. But here, try some triamcinolone. And then it works. And then we're like, okay, good. But 
now here's uh, some more information about what could potentially be going on. I like it. I also like steroids for vitiligo. Good transition. I'm proud of you. you. Yeah. So this is also from the JAD and is called a randomized comparative study of the effect of beta-methasone oral mini-pulse therapy versus oral azathioprine in progressive non-segmental vitiligo. This is out of India, and the authors include Suman Patra and Ninan Khanna. So I see a fair number of kids with vitiligo, and, you know, first line is topical stuff topical steroids, maybe some calcineurin inhibitors or calcipotrine or something. And then if they don't get better with that, then we start talking about, you know, phototherapy and potentially systemic options. And one of the systemic options I sometimes use is dexamethasone mini pulses. And these guys tried beta-methasone mini pulses. So there were 55 patients. They had reasonably bad vitiligo. They were all adults. And they were divided into two groups, beta-methasone mini pulses and azathioprine. And the upshot is that beta-methasone led to better improvement, but had more side effects. Okay. So the beta-methasone mini-pulses they use were 5 milligrams a day, but just on Saturdays and Sundays. So that's how this is a mini-pulse. You give these systemic steroids just two days out of the week, usually. It's the weekend, because that's you know what people can remember. Uh, 5 milligrams of beta-methasone is equivalent to 30 milligrams of prednisone, roughly. And I use this dexamethasone because Dr. Amit Pandya, who's a vitiligo expert, came and gave us a talk once when I was in fellowship in Oregon, and he said that that's what he used. And it's dexamethasone four milligrams per 150 pounds of the patient, but go ahead. He's such a great advocate for patients with vitiligo. So Dr. Pandya is kind of a, you know, of course, recognized authority, but I also kind of think of him as like a patient hero in that realm. For sure. And four milligrams of dexamethasone is about equivalent to 25 milligrams of prednisone. So 25 to 30 milligrams of prednisone equivalents are generally what we're giving these people on Saturdays and Sundays. And the reason that beta-methasone or dexamethasone is used is probably because those are long-acting steroids, whereas prednisone is intermediate-acting. And the azathioprine group got azathioprine 50 milligrams POBID. There's some more lab monitoring required for azathioprine, of course. So remember, for example, to check TPMT levels because you don't want to accidentally cause some horrible adverse effect if you don't. You remember and what that stands for? for? What TPMT stands for? Thiopurine methyl transferase. Yes, good pumping. Everyone was treated for at least six months, and then they were tapered off over another four months. So, again, the duration is important. I like to tell patients and their families that treating vitiligo is a marathon, not a sprint. It takes six months to really see improvement. I always take photographs of my patients at baseline, because if you're seeing yourself or your kid every day, sometimes it's harder to appreciate when things are getting better. And then I usually say, we'll see in six months, just because that's how long it takes. Unless they're on some systemic, then I might just want to check their tolerance. But I say this follow-up in three months is not because I think you're going to be better. It's just to make sure the medicine's not causing any problems. Anyway, only 37 of the 55 patients finished at least six months of therapy. So it's hard for people to do stuff. The beta-methasone group had statistically better arrest of depigmentation, both in terms of how long it took to stop their depigmentation and the number of patients who achieved that endpoint. And the beta-methasone group had better percent of repigmentation. So after six months of these beta-methasone mini-pulses, 11% of those patients had more than 20% repigmentation. 11% of them had 10 to 20% repigmentation. And 47% had 5 to 10% repigmentation. So taken all together, about two-thirds of patients got at least 5% repigmentation on beta-methasone mini-pulses. 5% repigmentation is, you know, not all that much, but it's certainly better than zero or negative, which probably would happen if you just leave the disease to do its own thing. Of course, we mentioned the adverse events were worse in the beta-methasone group, so those patients got some weight gain, some hypertension. These are things you would guess with systemic steroids, elevated blood sugars, hirsutism, dyspepsia, peptic ulcer disease, even pyoderma was mentioned, so that's Mm. like bacterial infection. The azathioprine group, generally they did fine. They said one person in the group developed acute pancreatitis, though. 
I don't normally think of that as a side effect of azathioprine. Am I misremembering? That... I usually think of liver troubles with azathioprine, but continue and I'll check. None of the patients developed transaminitis or leukopenia, but of course they were being monitored. So that's all. So you can consider beta-methasone mini-pulses or perhaps dexamethasone mini-pulses for your patients with vitiligo. You can think about systemic immunosuppressants as well. I know people do methotrexate and stuff like that. It's it's rough when you have to go down that route. Perhaps our JAK inhibitors are going to be the ones that save the day, just like we hope they save the day for our alopecia areata patients and our atopic dermatitis kids who hate getting dupilumab shots. Okay, so actually azathioprine does cause drug-induced pancreatitis, and it is more likely in the setting of Crohn's disease compared with other conditions, but it is definitely a potential side effect of the drug. So unfortunately, I think I have one patient on azathioprine patient has oral lichen planus since the only thing we could stabilize that person on. But it's it's a drug that's hard to use and it increases the risk of squamous cell carcinoma. So it's not my favorite chemotherapeutic by a long shot, but good yeah, to know. I so. normally do methotrexate and then mycophenolate and then azathioprine if we're just doing like traditional immunosuppressants. I don't think I have anybody on azathioprine. So we, we always learn new things. So azathioprine, drug-induced pancreatitis, the more you know. That's a good article, Luke. Thanks. One of the themes you kind I of brought write it. Yeah, I but didn't do the study you know, or anything. I just am um, telling picked, you guys about it. <laughs> you picked a good article. Um, so one of the themes you brought forward there was usually with medications, mo efficacy, mo problems, right? But here we're going to review an article that's looking at medications, trying to find ones that are more efficacious with fewer side effects. So this is a report out of JAMA Dermatology. It's an original investigation on the evaluation of pharmacologic therapy for H1 antihistamine refractory chronic spontaneous urticaria, a systematic review and network meta-analysis by authors Surapan Nashaiwang and Siri Chaiushanvit. Pretty good name. Um, so these um, researchers are out of Chiang Mai University in Thailand. And um, they don't seem to have huge conflicts of interest. So that's good because there is definitely a winner in this article. <laughs> Whenever there's a clear winner in an article, I always like to make sure that um, there's not any conflicts of interest because, you know, there's definitely a winner in this one. So they wanted to look at the comparative benefits and harms of all available treatments for H1 antihistamine refractory chronic spontaneous urticaria. Um, H1 antihistamines, of course, are the ones we would always think of as an antihistamine like loratadine and fexofenadine and all of those things. The H2 blockers are the ones that are used for gastric problems like ranitidine and cimetidine. So these are H1 antihistamine refractory CSU. They wanted to look at different treatment effects of pharmacologic therapies on patients who had been studied. They looked at multiple different um, databases, Medline, Embase, PubMed, Cochrane, Web of Science, Scopus, all of those to kind of find studies. And they included randomized clinical trials that had used validated measurement tools investigating the benefits and harms of pharmacologic treatments in adolescent or adult patients with chronic spontaneous urticaria who had not responded to H1 antihistamines. They had two investigators that independently extracted the study data and also screened the studies. They used a random effects model to calculate the network estimates reported as standard mean differences and odds ratios with corresponding 95% confidence intervals. And their primary outcomes that are going to reflect the patient's perspective. So they're trying to look at this from, if I was the patient, what would I care about? And if I was the patient, I would care about how well is it going to work and what side effects am I going to get? So they looked at changes in urticaria symptoms from baseline and what they called unacceptability of treatment, which is related to side effects and all-cause dropouts. They ended up including 23 randomized clinical trials with 2,480 participants, and these were able to compare 18 different interventions or dosages of medications or placebo. The standardized mean difference for change in urticaria symptoms is the measure they were looking at. So the winners in this publication were this drug called the ligalizumab. So as y'all who are listeners to the Dermisphere podcast may know, Mr. Dr. Tarbox is an allergist. And Mr. Dr. Tarbox is quite a fan of ligalizumab for good reason. So ligalizumab is basically omalizumab 2.0. So if you're familiar with omalizumab or Zolaire, you know that that's a drug that binds free IgE in the serum. It makes trimers and hexamers, and it binds the high affinity IgE receptor, the FC epsilon receptor, and that is going to impair it from interacting with its kind of effector cells like mast cells and, beta and uh, basophils. Ding, ding, ding. 
So omalizumab, anti-IgE. Mm-hmm. So ligalizumab is sort of omalizumab 2.0. It is still in clinical trials. It's in phase three trials right now. It has been granted breakthrough therapy designation in January 2021 by the FDA, but its current study name is QGE031, just rolls off the tongue. Um, I'm sure that it will be given a trade name sometime soon, but it is 88-fold more affinity for the IgE um, like binding than Zolaire. And so it's been found not surprisingly to be more efficacious than Zolaire in treating chronic spontaneous urticaria specifically. So the winner in this paper was ligalizumab. They looked at a couple of different doses of it. So their standardized mean difference in change of urticaria symptoms were negative 1.05. When you're looking at a standardized mean difference in a symptom, lower is better. So negative is better. So negative 1.05 with a confidence interval of 0.13, sorry, a confidence interval of negative 1.37 to negative 0.73. That was for legalizumab 72 milligrams. When you go all the way up to legalizumab 240 milligrams, the um, standardized mean difference was actually not as good. It was negative 0.77 with a confidence interval of negative 0.91 to negative 0.63. So more isn't always better, I guess. For omalizumab, which was also found to be beneficial, it was for the 300 milligram dose, negative 0.59, confidence interval of negative 1.1 to negative 0.08. So almost hit zero there, which would have mean there, meant there's no difference which means it's not effective um, for omalizumab 300 for omalizumab. Sorry, that was for omalizumab 600 for omalizumab 300. Um, it was a little bit tight, a tiny bit tighter, but so close. So they didn't find any significant differences in treatment unacceptability with respect to benefits and harms. And they found that the most efficacious treatments considering the quality of evidence, as well as the risk of side effects were the legalizumab at both doses, 72 or 240 milligrams with a large beneficial effect and omalizumab 300 or 600 milligrams with a moderate beneficial effect. So that was their sort of summary of the whole paper. Now let's go a little bit into the deets. So they wanted to look at chronic spontaneous urticaria because it is the most common form of chronic urticaria and it causes a lot of problems for patients in terms of morbidity, impaired health-related quality, as well as productivity. I have a question. Yes. Is chronic spontaneous urticaria the new name for chronic idiopathic urticaria? I think so. Um, chronic spontaneous urticaria has the same definition as chronic idiopathic urticaria, which is basically a episode of urticaria or angioedema lasting more than six weeks without any specific eliciting triggers, which is the same to me as chronic idiopathic urticaria. So I don't know if we're trying to move away from the word idiopathic. Spontaneous does put less blame on us as we're not idiots and can't figure out what's caused it, you know. True. Yes. Just happens. Yes, it just happens. You know, things happen. It's spontaneous. It's like when I was 17 and I just did stuff. Yes, the, the universe just, you know, it occurs. Um, so patients are often uh, able to manage chronic spontaneous urticaria with non-sedating second-generation H1 antihistamines. However, less than half of patients do receive adequate treatment with licensed doses of the second-generation H1 antihistamines. And I did want to point out that licensed dosage part, because there have been many studies that have shown that giving like twice daily dosage of medications that are labeled for once daily use does improve the control of patients having chronic spontaneous urticaria. You do oh, have yeah, to... it's part of the guidelines that you can go up to four times normal dosing of these first and second generation antihistamines before you start thinking about other stuff. Yeah. And you just do have to be careful in kidney disease. And of course, the side effects of the antihistamine increase. So the dry mouth, maybe a little bit of sedation, even in the non-sedating ones, you hit a high enough dose, potentially. So those are the considerations you have to put forward. Do you have a favorite non-sedating My antihistamine? My personal favorite is actually, so if I can, if I can get it, um, Zizol twice daily is my favorite favorite, and it's over the counter now. Um, levocetirazine. Levocetirazine. Um, still can be mildly sedating, even though it's not supposed to be. And then um, fexofenadine would be my second favorite, which is Allegra. I don't think like loratadine works super duper well with Claritin. I just feel like for urticaria, it's not fantastic. I normally default to cetirazine, which is Zyrtec. Mm -hmm. But uh, we had a guest speaker, Dr. Jurizzo, who told us that it can be sedating still in something yeah, like 10 definitely. to 15% of patients. Yeah. So he also likes levo cetirazine. I think it just might be more expensive. 
It is. It's definitely more expensive. So they looked at, so they said to date, there are some promising novel, novel pharmacologic therapies for H1 antihistamine refractory CSU, and that they have anti-inflammatory, immunosuppressant, or immunomodulatory, biological, or other pharmacological activity, but they wanted to look at a comparative study. And so that's what they undertook. And it was quite an undertaking. I won't go through their methods, but they, I will tell you there was quite a lot of rigor applied to this. So the um, different Pharmacologic interventions that they reviewed include cyclosporin, dapsone, um, hydroxychloroquine, and then, of course, the legalizumab and omalizumab. They also looked at zafirlucast, which is an old version of montelukast, which actually was taken off the market in March of 2018. Um, zafirlucast was taken off because of liver issues. But as you may know, that is going to be a mast cell treating agents. And whenever I talk about anything in that family, I do like to bring up the fact that Montelukast was given a black box warning in March of 2020 due to psychological symptoms, including suicidal ideation, hallucinations, bad dreams, depression, and confusion. So that's an important thing to be aware of if you are using Montelukast, which is singular. So Zephyrlucast was their sort of version of Montelukast in this study. Um, they also looked at a couple of other substances that didn't seem to demonstrate efficaciousness in chronic spontaneous urticaria, including methotrexate and a experimental drug called AZD-1981. That sounds fun, um, which is a CRTH2 antagonist receptor. And so base receptor antagonist. And what it does is it kind of helps interfere with the chemoattractant receptor on Th2 cells, and it decreases the elaboration of CD11B on um, eosinophils and chemotaxis of eosinophils and also Th2 cells. So that did not seem to be super duper effective. They didn't find any significant difference in the comparisons for unacceptability of treatment, and their top-ranked intervention based off of quality of evidence and side effects was the ligazumab at the lower dose, 72 milligrams. So when I was first reviewing this, I was looking at it going, wait a second here. Because the standardized mean difference, if you look at the table that they include, for all of the different agents, the best standardized mean difference isn't actually legalizumab. It's actually hydroxychloroquine with a negative 1.26 and the confidence interval of negative 1.85 to negative 0.66. The reason that it didn't get um, sort of winning this paper was that its level of evidence was low and its potential risk of side effects was higher. Similarly, Dapsone also had a better um, standardized mean difference than legalizumab, even at the winning um, winning strength of the 72 milligrams with the standardized mean difference of negative 1.26, but again, low quality of evidence and some side effects. So they're putting together a couple of metrics, and that is why um, you're not seeing a clear winner based off of just one aspect of the drug. There's this interesting table they include, which plots efficacy along one axis and then mm -hmm. all cause dropouts on yep. the other. So that's sort of a surrogate for side effects or people feeling it's not working or something like that. So the drugs like on the bottom right have the greatest efficacy and the lowest dropouts mm -hmm. and ligaluzumab is down there. Yeah. But we obviously can't get ligaluzumab right now. Right, and it's... even when we can, it's probably going to be like $70,000. Uh -huh. Yep. So if you like, I think this is a nice little table to look at and say, okay, I want to get things sort of in the bottom right. So right. legalizumab is probably best, but let's see, omalizumab is close by, cyclosporin is pretty close by. Mm -hmm. What else can I do here? Oh, there's azathioprine kind of in the middle somewhere. Now, cyclosporin, interestingly enough, um, it is in that bottom right-hand corner, which would kind of indicate better efficacy for less side effects. That may be the product of the study, though. There are evidence for that um, when they were looking specifically at cyclosporin, like their level of evidence when they reviewed the paper was relatively low comparatively. And the other problem was that they actually pointed out cyclosporin was ranked as the top undesirable treatment with higher risk of adverse events and adverse side effects, even though um, the dropouts weren't as severe. And I do sometimes wonder about, you know, different study design influencing how patients drop out, different patient recruitment. Potentially, these are patients who lack access to other therapeutics. And so that is potentially something to take into consideration. There were some other drugs that I don't think we know as well about, but we might want to know about that were included in the analysis, including miltefacine. Have you ever heard of miltefacine? I don't think so. Impavido is apparently its trade name. It is an anti-leishmaniasis and anti-amoebic drug. 
And it actually interacts with cytochrome C oxidase and causes apoptosis. So I thought that was interesting. So miltefacine. At first, I thought it was mifepristone because I just read it that way. At first, I was like, well, that's weird. And I was like, wait a second, though, it's miltefacine. So anti-leishmaniasis and anti-amoebic drug. Impivato, fun. Um, I also always, whenever I bring up Dapsone, I like to ask about what kind of neuropathy Dapsone causes. And I have a silly mnemonic for that, which is Dapsone to me sounds like AutoZone where you take your motor car. So it is a motor neuropathy. Um, other things that they looked at, canakinumab, that's an IL-1 inhibitor, which is kind of a drug that we also don't use so much. That's no, that maybe an HS occasionally. And then quilizumab, which is a different um, IgE inhibitor, sort of another version of omalizumab. Something else in trials, I guess, since I've never heard of it before. Yeah, quilizumab. So, quilizumab. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. It looked like it was named after the character in Guardians of the Galaxy. Quilizumab. I hope it is. Wouldn't that be great if somebody did name that after a comic book character? That's my goal. Eventually discover some kind of medication, name it after someone in the Marvel um, extended universe. So, in Hugh, uh, basically looking at all of these factors taken together, they found, of course, that the the best improvement with the lowest risk and the best evidence was the ligalizumab and um, second seconded by the omalizumab. So, when they looked at evidence of certainty for treatment comparisons, those were limited because of those low findings are either study bias, reporting bias, imprecision, or something called transivity, which is um, heterogeneity in the study, and that makes it hard to generalize the results. They had a couple of studies they also commented on, including one by Colsonon et al. that suggested cyclosporin is effective, but its clinical utility is limited by safety profiles. And that is my personal experience as well. Whenever I've had a patient with refractory or urticaria that I cannot get on omalizumab, and I can't get one of our local allergists, including Mr. Dr. Tarbox, I never refer to him directly because I don't want to be, you know, confused with nepotism or anything like that, accused of nepotism. But um, whenever I can't do that, you know, cyclosporin is a consideration, but we always have to worry about the toxicities, which of course include the risk of kidney damage. And we also have to keep track of magnesium. Magnesium, very important to watch while you are treating patients with cyclosporin. What level of magnesium do you say, oh, uh, maybe I need to do something? So I feel like, um, I'm trying to remember exactly the parameters. I think like so, two. I feel but, like two is the, can, like where the normal lower yeah. limit of normal is. But I think I've heard that you can 1.5 is where you should start asking for help. I'm not quite sure who you ask for help, though. Who are the magnesiumologists? Magnesiologists. Kidney I don't dogs? know. I guess it would be kidney or maybe endocrine. But um, yeah, and the hard thing is that magnesium supplements have therapy limiting side effects, mainly GI ones. So magnesium will cause impressive diarrhea in most people at the proper dose. So you have to find the sweet spot where the patient can tolerate the supplementation without having significant and debilitating diarrhea. Um, they Speaking also of random pimpable facts related to magnesium, isn't it a treatment for eclampsia? It is a treatment world? for eclampsia, Yes. There you go. Any medical students listening, watch for that on step one. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, importantly, this study um, supported findings that were previously reported by Patel et al. that showed no significant benefit of methotrexate for the treatment of chronic spontaneous urticaria. And so I think that it's always good to know what drugs that we might think of are probably not going to be helpful, especially when it's a drug that has potentially got some significant side effects associated with it. So the legalizumab is in the phase three studies right now, and it has that breakthrough therapy designation. Um, theoretically, mast cells are the primary effector cells that contribute to the pathogenesis of chronic spontaneous urticaria. So blockade, blockade of mast cell activation by the biologics, omalizumab and legalizumab by reducing free IgE may potentially direct the mechanism of chronic spontaneous urticaria because they block and bind to the high affinity IgE receptor region. So they, that thing can't then dock into a mast cell or a basophil. So dapsone, hydrochloroquine, sorry, hydroxychloroquine, cyclosporin, and zephyrlocast, all of those showed some benefit, but also showed some side effects and had lower levels of evidence for their benefits. And then um, the two biologics that we've been ad-libbing nonstop about, those two uh, did show some benefits. So we look forward to hopefully getting access to legalizumab and hopefully not having it be impossible to get for patients. Um, but I was re very much relieved to see there was no um, conflict of interest in any of the authors because, you know, like I said, there was a clear winner and it was one of the more expensive drugs. And the drugs here were that 
Um, standard mean difference, the confidence interval includes one, suggesting that at least in some patients it may not do anything at all. Include azathioprine, canakinumab, miltefacine, methotrexate, and then montelukast. They said insufficient data. So you might want to avoid those even if you say, well, methotrexate's an immunosuppressant that I'm comfortable with. Looks like it might not be the right choice for these guys. I don't see mycophenolate here on the list at all either. And Montelukast, just remembering that black box warning about like mood disorders, and you certainly wouldn't want to prescribe it for patients that have psychiatric abnormalities at baseline without discussing with their treating psychiatrist and investigating other options. For Montelukast, I didn't know there was a black box warning. I yeah. don't think I've ever prescribed it. March um, March of 2020 got placed on there for suicidal ideation, hallucinations, um, and confusion and depression, anxiety. Okay, so ding, ding again. All right. Well, I think we've got time for one more article here. And what's what would you like to end on, Michelle? I bet it's children's toes. You know, I mean, toenails are a good Halloween topic. You know, it makes me think for some reason of Frankenstein. I don't know why, but yes, absolutely. I like it. Uh, I can't tell you why it makes you think of Frankenstein. Because, you know, if you've um, ever seen ones that have like the malorientation or whatever, they're real thick and they kind of like monstrous looking, perhaps. I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> You'd like to put them on some Ritz crackers? Is that <laughs> how you're reminded? Put them on the Ritz. Da, da, da. That was good. I appreciate that. <laughs> so this is an article out of Pediatric Dermatology, and it is called Congenital Malalignment of the Great Toenail, Conservative and Definitive Treatment. The authors are out of Mexico and include Judith Dominguez Charit, and I guess that sounded more French. That was know. pretty Can nice, I do a though. Mexican accent? Annabelle yeah. Andrea Lima Galindo. That was pretty. A little better. Okay, so congenital malalignment of the great toenails is something that I see sometimes. And basically, it's when the kid's great toenails go off to the side. They're laterally deviated. It just happens. It's spontaneous. It's not idiopathic, that's for sure. So they point out that there are some ideas about why it could happen, but nobody really knows for sure. Some people think it's an abnormality in the ligament connecting the nail matrix to the periosteum. Some people think it's an increase in the tension of the hallux extensor tendon. Remember, the hallux is the other name for the great toe. And then some people think it's a lack of synchronization between the growth of the phalanx and the growth of the nail. So one of them's growing faster than the other or something like that. But we don't really know why it happens. Um, it's fairly common. It's also called ungual malalignment. And I usually treat it by ignoring it <laughs> but these authors make a case for correction before age two which i found rather surprising Oof. they wonder if genetic factors do contribute in addition to those other things we mentioned they do they say there's an association with twins and within families they wonder that maybe it's autosomal dominant with variable penetrance slash expressivity Interesting. perhaps there are physical forces that could play a role like uh, intrauterine pressure or something like that they say that in about 50% of cases, they spontaneously resolve. So I think that's why I treat this by ignoring it, because I am an optimist. And I feel like <laughs> it's often just going to get better. But 50% is less than I thought, honestly. And they say that in the author's experience, there's no way to tell who's going to improve and who's not to. Mm. And if your nail is going off to the side, then that predisposes the nail to microtrauma, which can then lead to all kinds of issues like dystrophy and what they call oyster shell deformity. So that's like this mm -hmm. thick, like multiple lamellated nail that kind of looks like an oyster shell. Onycholysis, remember that means the nails peeling off of the nail bed. So those of you who don't do a lot of stuff with nails, like a refresher of nail terminology might be helpful. The nail itself is called the nail plate. And the skin underneath the nail is called the nail bed. And then where your nail sort of touches the surrounding skin, those are the nail folds. So there's two lateral nail folds on either side and then the proximal nail fold on the bottom. So onycholysis is when the nail plate is lifting off of the nail bed. It can also predispose you to onychocryptosis, which is ingrowing nail, to perinichia, which is inflammation around the nail, to infection, and to a lot of inconvenience. If all of these problems, you know, make it so when you put socks on your kid, they catch on his toenails or they can't wear the right shoes and stuff like that. So that's the author's concern that this malalignment is going to lead to all those issues and just fix it early and maybe avoid them. They say that they like to divide up 
um, cases into three degrees of deviation. So if you're looking, if the bone is sort of straight, the nails, you know, tilted off to one side, how much is it tilted? Is it less than 10 degrees? Is it 10 to 20 degrees? Or is it 20 degrees or more? If it's less than 10 degrees, then they say, well, maybe Dr. Johnson's right by ignoring it. Though they say, manage it conservatively with well-fitting shoes and perhaps, quote, massage maneuvers that will help the nail to grow by depressing the lateral nail fold and avoiding nail embedding. So it's interesting, but I don't know what to tell my parents, like my patient's parents about that. Like every so often rub the side of the toe or if you see you think it's going to start in growing, then like massage that area to just sort of push that tissue away from the nail. So that's less likely. Obviously, nobody's done studies on, well, massage two minutes, three times a day corrects problems when they're 20 years old. So perhaps that could help. You can also think about using tretinoin. So I occasionally use tretinoin on like the proximal nail folds and stuff for people with something like psoriatic nail dystrophy. They say consider tretinoin 0.025% cream nightly to the nail bed. Um, In addition, they say they have achieved good results with this stuff called thymol, T-H-Y-M-O-L. You ever heard of thymol? I don't think we can get it in this country. I'm not positive, but let me check. They do say that it is banned in some countries for use in children. It's a phenol derivative. So if you combine thymol, 1% to 4%, with chloroform. So okay. I remember chloroform <laughs> being what they used to like put on handkerchiefs and put over people's mouths in old television shows to make them pass out and then like abduct them. But apparently mixing those two together and applied each night and then tretinoin cream in the morning... That helps remove the squamous metaplasia and promotes adhesion to the nail plate. The uh, thymol chloroform mixture has bactericidal and fungicidal properties, and they favor and helps favor adhesion of the nail plate to the nail bed. So, those of you listening in probably other countries than the United States might be able to get that stuff. I it probably is would just apparently so it's it's used primarily in the U.S. as like a pesticide. Um, Interesting. It is in some essential oil products, so you may be able to get it at like lower concentrations. It is a you know essential oil. Some people think it has a antimicrobial activity. Um, interesting. It's in some botanical oils like bee balms, wildflowers, herbal. So basically, I think it comes from thyme, like the herb. And it was originally thyme. used. Yes, thyme. Sorry. And it was originally used in ancient Egypt for embalming. Intriguing. Okay. Just got to so, embalm some toenails there. So. Yeah, if you're feeling uh, spicy, <laughs> go ahead and try that. <laughs> if the deviation is 10 to 20 degrees and there's pain from ingrowing toes, you can consider, consider chemical matrixectomy of the offending side. So I think most dermatologists are familiar with matrixectomies. That's when you like cut out the offending part of the nail plate and then use this chemical to prevent the nail plate from ever growing again in that spot, uh, but just in that spot. And then if there's 20 degrees or more of deviation, then they recommend surgical correction before age two. And the reason is that the dystrophy can become permanent after age two. So correct the abnormality before then. Surgical correction is basically done via a rotation flap. And this article includes a diagram showing how to do it. The first author, Dr. Dominguez Cherit, has 32 years of experience and has corrected eight of these in kids under two. And then I think that underscores the fact that this is sort of a controversial surgical approach among both providers and families. And I, I'm not going to do this, but mm. maybe an orthopedic surgeon or a podiatrist or something would. So after reading this article, I'm a little less blasé about this congenital malalignment thing, just generally getting better on its own. I can tell parents that at least it's got about a 50% chance of getting better. And if it's especially deviated, then we can consider a surgical correction. But kids just have weird toenails, Michelle. You know, they have like tracheonychia and they have this congenital malalignment stuff. And then their nails like grow down and under and then into their little toes. And then I feel like most of it just gets better because most adults have a period of beautiful toenails before they hit like, age 40 or 50 and then they're all gnarly again 
I wonder also if the surgery would work for onychogryphosis or not. Like, I mean, it, I feel like the authors are promoting that it probably reaches a period of intractable, uh, intractableness to treatment. But, and, you know, we were talking earlier about the imaging studies and the necessity to either sedate or fully anesthetize people of young age for procedures. Adults have a hard time with nail procedures. So I think you'd have to knock these kids fully out to do this kind of procedure, especially since it involves precision and, you know, you couldn't possibly do this kind of precise type of surgery, I think, with a patient that was moving around. So it would be a little bit challenging that way. Um, So I did find some... quite a feat. It would be really hard to nail it. Ah! Uh, Totally. (laughs) Totally. I did find um, that you can buy Thymol on um, Amazon. So there was a product I found that was the Amazon recommended one called MRS Thymol. Not that I recommend Amazon. It's just easy to check things on. One of the ratings for it was funny, though. It said that it works, but it smells terrible. <laughs> works so for people, what? Um, people buy it for nail antifungal treatment. So potentially that would be something to recommend for your crunchy granola patients who want something natural to treat their nail fungus. Um and it apparently doesn't smell amazing. Uh, I would potentially be careful on patients who have like contact allergies or irritated skin, but maybe, maybe something to maybe add. Maybe it's about time for a more natural ah, therapy. I like that, Luke. <laughs> All right, friends. Well, in addition to bad dad jokes, today we learned about imaging and neurocutaneous disorders. We learned about piezogenic painful pitting of the fingers consider treating with topical steroids or topical anesthetics. And if you biopsy, you might see some extra nerve fibers. We learned about beta-methasone mini pulses for vitiligo, a bit more effective than azathioprine, but a bit more side effects as well. We learned about treatments for chronic spontaneous urticaria, and we are looking forward to legalizumab and hoping that it is affordable. And in the meantime, if they're not responding to antihistamines, what do you do, Michelle? So, um, I'll try to refer them to an allergist somewhere, like not Mr. Dr. Tarbox specifically, because again, don't want to be confused, don't want to be accused of nepotism. Do you know the origin of the word nepotism? It's really cool. Nope. Okay. So in Italian, the word neputin means nephew. And so you know how popes weren't really supposed to have kids, you know, but some of them did have kids. And those, their children were often referred to if they were boys as the pope's nephews, even though they were actually the popes. Usually, well, by definition, I guess, illegitimate sons. And so they would be given positions of prominence in the government, which was basically the church at that time. And so nepotism comes from that Italian word neputin, which is was being used as a euphemism to describe the illegitimate children of popes who were not supposed to be reproducing because they were not supposed to be engaging in such relations that were, oh, too earthly for their profession. I see. Yeah, Interesting, right? Yeah, it's a cool thing. So... First, chronic spontaneous urticaria. You refer them to <laughs> not so Mr. Refer Dr. Them to any allergist to see if that allergist can get them on emulizumab because I have found that for some reason with certain medications, which which physician is trying to prescribe it can influence whether or not the patient is covered for it. And I don't understand how that works, but it makes a difference. Like I have patients that I have that have ocular rosacea and I can't get them covered for the cyclosporine eye drops. But if I send them to an ophthalmologist, they can get them covered for restasis. You know, so it's kind of one of those weird things. So if I can't get that for them and the twice daily or increased dosage of the H1 antihistamines doesn't work well, then I talk with them about cyclosporine if they're an appropriate candidate. I have some patients I have treated with hydroxychloroquine. Um, I have some people I use Dapsone for actually, since Dapsone interacts with the cell that sort of initiates the entire process. So if you're a histopathologist, you know that the first histologic sign of urticaria is actually neutrophils marginating along the vascular endothelia because they're basically the rabble rousers that start the whole thing. So even though the effector cells are mast cells, the neutrophils kind of start the party. And so getting in front of that, especially for physical urticarias, I found to be very effective. But of course, with Dapsone, AutoZone, you have to worry about that beep, beep, motor neuropathy. So be careful about that. And methemoglobinemia. Yeah, you got to check a G6PD with that one. Not with Plaquenil, not with hydroxychloroquine. That's not really recommended anymore, but with Dapsone, yes. We also learned about congenital malalignment of the great toenails and how it might correct itself, but if it's especially malaligned, consider surgical correction. 
Thanks so much for joining us, guys. And thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. Thanks also to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who keeps our social media buzzing along. Yes, we are modern and hip. You can find us on Instagram, <laughs> which Michelle was updating during our conversation today, <laughs> as well as Facebook and Twitter. And you can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which is a nice way to get in touch with us and also a way to find all of our archives, though you can also find our archives on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks, of course, to our listeners. Thanks for hanging out with us for the past hour. And we will see you guys in two weeks. Bye.